Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Radical Candor podcast. I'm Jason Rosoff, CEO and co-founder of Radical Candor. I'm Brandy Neal, producer of the podcast and director of content for Radical Candor. I'll be joining the discussion this week. Welcome, Brandy, and I'm Amy Sandler, your host for the Radical Candor podcast. Today, we're talking about manipulative insincerity. One way to determine whether or not you're operating from this quadrant is just ask yourself, am I talking about someone rather than to someone? And if the answer is yes, welcome to manipulative insincerity. What was interesting to me is like, as I was looking over the agenda or, or like the topics we wanted to discuss, I actually thought that it didn't ring true to me that like the being remote was was newly creating this problem. Like my perspective is I have less manipulative insincerity with this team than I did with my team at Khan Academy. And that is just in part because the team was bigger and there were fewer interactions with the people there. And we handled a lot of things over Slack and asynchronously. And I feel like it's like desynchronization that that I think more than it is remoteness that causes a shift towards manipulative insincerity. I wonder if like scaling sincerity is like, like one of the things that Kim says is that, you know, relationships don't scale, but culture does. So like how to, how to kind of scale sincerity. Yeah. I think it depends on the size of the organization because I don't have that feeling with this team, but decentralization of people create this extra barrier to getting the stuff you need to do your job. I'll take it a step further and say, like, we had our office had like a bank of elevators and bathrooms in the middle. And this would happen between teams who are seated on one side versus teams who are seated on the other side of that bank of elevators. So I don't just wouldn't like go talk to the people on the other side of the elevators. <laughs> Correct. And when we noticed it happening, we we're like, why didn't you just walk over there and, and talk to this person? You know what I mean? And then we, I remember so clearly, like, and we were considering renting the bottom floor. And one of our biggest debates was, well, once people go downstairs, like, we'll never see them again. Like, that was that serious consideration. 100% true. I worked at the newspaper I worked at. We had editorial was in the basement and advertising was on the first floor. And I don't think in two years, advertising ever came downstairs. They would call or they would email and make us come up. I think we're especially focused on it at this moment because there's some, some additional sort of forced decentralization going on. I just feel like my, and this is anecdotal, of course, but my anecdotal experience tells me that it really does not take much distance between two people <laughs> before you start to see these behaviors. And I think that because we've made it easier and easier to communicate asynchronously, I think it, that has exacerbated the problem because in a world where you didn't have email uh, and you didn't have Slack, I assume there were still like passive aggressive memos that were being sent around back then, right? Like, like someone was putting in their outbox a thing that was like, I can't yeah. believe what Karen did. Per, per my memo. <laughs> per my mimeograph totally. copy. Well, I think what's really interesting if we're talking about, and just to let you all know what we're talking about today on the podcast, we're talking about manipulative insincerity, that area where we neither show the people that we care personally, nor do we challenge directly. And one of the things that's interesting is that we think, oh, well, this is really being exacerbated by remote environments. And I think Jason, Jason, what you're saying is, 
Well, in fact, there's kind of this fundamental human sort of push to manipulative insincerity and or drift. And it's it's not so much about the virtual as it is to your point about asynchronous communication and also just human to human. Like we don't, it's a lot easier to not talk to someone, but to actually talk about them. So whether it's the meeting after the meeting or the Slack after the meeting, or like the, the technology might change, but the human need underneath it has not changed. Yeah. And I think one thing that we hear in our workshops all the time is that people generally speaking are conflict avoidant and the fear is that if I talk to someone directly, like it's going to create a conflict. And, and I understand that fear. And I feel like what I've learned over the course of a career is that that fear is, I'm often exaggerating that fear in, and essentially discounting the pain that I'm likely to feel by not addressing the issue directly sooner. The idea of like when synchronous communication is necessary both for sort of like the harmony and good functioning of a team as well as when it is necessary to have a chance to even be successful at communicating what you want like we're not very good at telling those things and as organizations grow i think we start to see that breakdown as organizations sort of physically separate even like one floor to the next we see that breakdown and we're seeing the same pattern repeat itself as we go from, you know, in office to out of office. One thing I wanted to add was that this trend has been going on a long time. And, and so a lot of organizations have already instituted what they call sort of like remote meeting hygiene, meaning if you have some people who are remote and some people who are in the office, even that state of being was already requiring a lot of organizations who are trying to get ahead of this to say, this is how we're going to have hygienic communication on these teams with some people remote and some people in person. Because if you're always on Zoom, it's really hard to jump in compared to like the group who's there discussing in person. So like, I think there's been some awareness of this, but my sense is like we're, we're sort of getting a more object lesson in these challenges as opposed to we're sort of blissfully unaware that we were experiencing these challenges before or we were calling them something else. But in my mind, it's all part of the same thing, that when you separate humans, you, in, you create communication and efficiency. I think that's why open offices became a thing, where you're all sitting at the table and nobody has an assigned seat. You just take your computer from place to place, which is also extremely disruptive to getting anything done. So is, how do we train people to have conversations with each other without having to like be seated together like kindergartners? It's really sort of fascinating. And I think I remember at Khan Academy when we first started using Slack, it didn't have the like voice call or video chat feature, which I know um, can cause some technical frustration as happened to our team this week uh, when I attempted to use it. And poor Brandy was being asked to give away all her rights on her computer to Slack to let it record all her innermost thoughts. But I remember when they added it and I thought like, this is really interesting because like this is the place where we're already communicating. And if we made it really easy to like press a button and go from asynchronous to synchronous communication, wouldn't that make a difference? And there are, we don't need to use that. There's also like Zoom plugins for Slack and things like that, which make it really easy to type Zoom in your Slack chat. And all of a sudden you have a Zoom, a fresh Zoom meeting where you can jump in and, 
and chat with each other. So I think we're getting there, but I also think it requires both discipline and a much deeper understanding than we have today that I'm including myself in that in, in the we there of when to switch mediums. Like when it when the conversation requires a higher bandwidth than the one that we're using. And I think usually the way that I figure that out is when it's already become sort of like frustrating, right? Like usually the way I figured it out is like, oh, like we're clearly miscommunicating or talking past each other. Let's switch to a higher, like there's a pattern when those things happen. And I'm sure if I thought about it deeply, I could start to identify it. But I just don't think we have, because we're so well adapted as a, as a creature to sort of live in person conversation and asynchronous communication is relatively new to us. It's not innate, and which means we need rules. I wanted to go back, Jason, to what you were saying, though, about how this isn't necessarily new. And one thing that has actually been, I think, a net victory from remote communications is that when I've been doing workshops, even groups that have a hybrid of people being on site and working from home, the people that are on site for safety reasons are actually, they're not gathering in a room together. They're still joining video. So it really equalizes the playing field because previously when we would have mixed structures, we would have a workshop where, you know, 80% of the people were in one room and then there would be people that were sort of on a video screen or even just calling in and you sort of forget like, oh, you know, Brandy's on the line, you know, and it's sort of, you have to like, try to really add this other person in. So I think in some ways it can actually level the playing field, even if people are still, in fact, both, you know, in an, in an office at a manufacturing plant, uh, et cetera. The other thing that I think is interesting, just to kind of frame the conversation, Jason, to your point about some structure. So there was a, a recent piece in the Harvard Business Review, a guide to managing your, and then this was in parentheses, newly remote workers. Um, this was from March 2020. So we may or may not be new, but a couple of things. One was lack of face-to-face -face supervision. One was lack of access to information, which you and Brandy were talking about, social isolation and distractions at home. So I think if we think about these kind of potential buckets of challenges that need to be addressed that might be exacerbated by remote can be more tactical, but underlying it, I think, is this root issue, which is that People don't want to have conflicts. They'd rather avoid it. And, and so remote or not, just acknowledging that kind of human aversion to conflict. You know, Amy, I know you have experience with being like the only remote person on an in-person team and how that manifested in your being manipulatively insincere. Thanks, Brandy, for the, the segue. Yeah, I mean, I think I was working on a project where it was very challenging for multiple reasons. One is I was the only remote person on uh, a team where everyone else was in the home office. And number two, I was overseeing kind of the content and the research for a project that was beset by a lot of technology challenges. And so the project owner was far more concerned about the technology challenges than about what was my area, which was kind of user experience and, and research related to that. And so I felt like I was sort of yelling into the wind really for years, <laughs> that's what it turned out to. And several years later, as this project uh, that kept going on, we had shirts that said, if this is a marathon, not a sprint, why am I running so fast? Uh, so we were kind of sprinting for, for years. Finally um, was 
moved off of that project, I think for, for my well-being as well as everyone else's, and a new project owner came on board and, and it was so interesting because after I'd been saying for years, you know, here's the research and nobody was listening to the research or what the users were actually saying, this new project owner came and had a call. Uh, and again, everyone was in our room except I was on the, on the, uh, and said, you know, I figured out what the root cause of the problem was. There was no research done on this project. And I knew there had been research. I had done it for years, but nobody had listened. And so rather than kind of moving up on the care and explaining again, I just, I was so exhausted. I just was like, sounds like a great idea, you know, good luck. And that was really the point when it was very clear to me that it was time for me to move on because I realized that I just, I was exhausted. I was burnt out and I felt like I had done so much that hadn't been responded to. And then when you're just not being helpful, it's not really a good feeling. It, it feels I think the challenge with manipulative insincerity is that sometimes it can be a very protective place to be when you're feeling really burnt out. And it's also a sign that something's not right, something's not working. And so I would say actually the greatest gift of that, not only that I didn't like how that felt and I didn't want to be in that quadrant again, uh, but it was that when I went to a new organization and I was now the new person looking at a situation rather than saying, I have the idea, why haven't you thought of this? You know, I realized with a little bit more empathy, they probably have thought of this, maybe there's a reason why they're not doing it. It caused me to be far more curious, caused me to move into that project with a lot more questions rather than making a quick judgment about why people hadn't done something. So it turned out to be very beneficial for a variety of reasons. I think a lot of people will probably be able to to empathize with your with your story and your position, I'll give you another flavor uh, of manipulative insincerity. Uh, at a previous job, I lived really close to one of my peers, and we would often sort of get together and walk around the neighborhood at night, and we'd kind of debrief what was going on and have these conversations where we were like, "Oh, like this and this and this happened, and you know, this person did that, and can you believe that that happened?" And it was sort of helpful and from like a therapeutic perspective. But I remember it was like maybe like a month or two after we had started doing that, that, you know, he, he turned to me and he said, you know, I'm getting worried because I feel like not only do these conversations not really address the underlying issue, like he, he said, you know, for me, I actually feel like we have done something at the end of this conversation. Like, I feel like we've addressed something like the, I'm getting the dopamine hit of like I fixed the problem by complaining about it to somebody else who can't do anything about it. And it was this real wake up moment for me where I realized the organization was going through a ton of change at that time. And there were some parts of it that were really frustrating, but I, I realized that, you know, this thing that I was doing that like, not only was it not productive, but it was, it had this really, really sinister element of feeling productive. I haven't described, heard it that described that way. And I think, there's something really powerful about that because it's like somehow we think by the act of complaining, by the saying of it, that that will result in some sort of action. So it like takes us, not only does it like sort of help us process the emotion of the frustration, but then it sort of almost takes any accountability. Like, well, I, I've done my part. <laughs> yeah. I, I said my piece. Yeah. Um, it's just that the person who needed to hear it and the person I needed to say it to, it like, wasn't there and they never heard most of what I was saying. 
And as a result, like, I don't think it was totally useless. Um, to be clear, I think like it did help me process and I did address some of the issues that came up. But what I realized was that some of the hardest things, like places where I deeply disagreed with our CEO, like I wasn't addressing those things. And those are the things that I, I that felt most likely to actually have a long-term negative impact on my ability to be productive. <laughs> and, and so I really appreciate what, what my colleague did for me of like bringing that to my attention. Um, and we changed those conversations so that we said like, we can still do this. We can debrief, but we're going to hold each other accountable for actually addressing the problems that we raise. And one of the, and it became a really productive thing. And that's why I wanted to draw one nuance when it comes to, you know, I think the description that you, you used at the beginning of sort of talking about someone instead of talking to them is, is exactly right. Like 95% of the time, that's probably manipulative insincerity. But there's another 5% of the time where you really do need to bounce an experience off someone else who you trust, who is not the person, because mm -hmm. you're trying to get a gut check on, is it me or is that, you know, like, is this really happening um, kind of a thing? And there's a subtlety there that I, I think trips people up sometimes when they think about it. But ultimately, I think it's sort of the difference between intention and impact again, like coming back to that idea, where if your intention is to have a conversation in the hopes of resolving an issue, you should measure the fitness of that choice at, against the whether or not it actually helped to, make, to like resolve the issue, not whether or not you sort of discussed it, not taking off the, I, we, I talked about it, but instead, this helped, this made it better. Well, I, I love bringing in intention and impact on this because when Brandy and I were talking earlier about manipulative insincerity, what I realized in teaching this quite a bit and in hearing people's feedback is what's, what's often very interesting is that we, we like to say it's measured, you know, radical candor is measured not at the speaker's mouth, but at the listener's ear. And there's something about manipulative insincerity that's certainly measured at the other person's ear or, you know, the idea that, gosh, that felt really sort of like BS. But there's also something where we have to get clarity on why am I doing this or not doing this? Am I, there's a part of me that doesn't want to hurt someone's feelings, which is ruinous empathy. And there's a part of me that doesn't want to say this or do this because then I'll look like the bad guy or then I'll have to deal with maybe not everyone liking me or maybe I'll have to deal with the conflict. And so it's really more about our own fears, et cetera. So often the same action could be both ruinous empathy. In other words, not telling the person they think they, the thing they need to know, but also there's some element of self-protection or I, I want to be seen a certain way, et cetera. At a previous job, when I worked at a very toxic organization and people had maybe gone many times to their managers or bosses and tried to be radically candid and it hadn't worked, there kind of became this cohort of people that found each other and formed a kind of a support group, which was really just a complaining session of all the terrible things that were happening in the organization. But in a lot of ways, it helped to keep people sane, even though it wasn't actually solving any problems because we didn't have any power to change anything. And I was actually one of the only people during my time there that sat on a call of 200 people directly to the CEO. These are the problems I see happening. Like, what are you going to do about it? And was dismissed and told that's not really happening. And 
where you're misinterpreting things. So having those complaining conversations was kind of the only way for us to get through being there. There's an element here of like whether or not you feel like radical candor is even a possibility, which it sounds like people did not feel like it was a possibility in those cases or not just a feeling, but maybe had evidence that it not it was not welcome or maybe even had been retaliated against in some way for sharing their perspective. I think the important part about the radical candor framework that often gets overlooked is that it's not meant to be it's not a personality test. It's not a judgment on character. And I actually think one of the weaknesses of the words manipulative insincerity boils down to the fact that it feels very judgmental, even though it's trying to be descriptive. And the downside of that is we don't want to say that we're doing it, um, even though it's actually a completely reasonable reaction to the situation that you're describing, uh, Right. It, it is it is reasonable to protect yourself. Right. It is reasonable not to be clear with other people if being clear gets you punished. And so I, I think that's something I often emphasize many times in the sessions, in the training sessions that I do is just, you know, we're, we're trying to describe behavior and we're doing it without judgment, because, in fact, there are times when these behaviors are some combination of instinctual and unavoidable and justifiable, even though they're not necessarily going to make the situation any better. To what you just shared, I think it's really important to call out because I was aware as we were sharing our own stories, there's something very, uh, there's like, whether it's shame or guilt, or it's like, there's something about these stories that nobody really wants to put themselves in that quadrant. Like, there's some element, not quite pride in being a jerk, but like, well, I really, like there's something sort of satisfying about that and ruinous empathy is like, oh, I was just care, but manipulative, there's something like sticky and, and uncomfortable about that quadrant. And I was aware, even as I share the story, it's not something that I'm proud of. And to your point about self-protection, I, I was exhausted. I had not been mm -hmm. listened to for years. And so whether it's a toxic environment like Brandy's talking about, whether it's bullying behavior, whether it's feeling like it's just not welcome, there is a real kind of self-protection element to this. And so I think that that's really important to kind of throw into this. And I think where it becomes potentially challenging in a remote world is where this sort of venting or sort of therapeutic part of it, when it's done in something like a Slack, that's when it potentially gets quite potentially dangerous, right? Where you're having conversations that are really more in the moment and processing an emotion. And I did this thing and how could I have done it better? But like, versus like, you wouldn't want to have that conversation in a Slack or something, which is, you know, was sort of preserved forever versus more of an emotional processing conversation. Brandy, why are you laughing? I was going to say, Amy, maybe you could tell the Slack story or about Charlie's teeth. Oh yeah. One of the things that we like to do in the workshops is you know, using just to get started with a simple example, imagine a colleague of yours has spinach in their teeth and as a way to go through the different radical candor quadrants, what would you say or not say? And when it came to manipulative insincerity, I see a lot of cre creativity, but there was nothing so creative as a group that literally created a Slack channel called Charlie's Teeth, in which they were going to talk about the spinach in Charlie's Teeth and intentionally didn't invite Charlie to the Slack channel, Charlie's Teeth. So there's a whole... And it was done in humor, but the alacrity with which they created this uh, led me to be slightly concerned. <laughs> this is something that we've done 
before. And I do think that's where there's a, there's humor, um, in the, in the exercise, but it's really quite poignant when you think about all the times when somebody really just needs to know the truth and people are talking about you behind your back and it's hurtful. Yeah. Something we used to emphasize around this was this idea of focusing on the other person's need and not your fear. And I think we're talking about some different situations, right? We're talking about different ways into manipulative insincerity. There's the self-protective way in, the self-defense way. There is the exhaustion, um, which I think is like, I, I want to separate it from self-defense only because I think like, I think it's a thing that people are feeling and they're not necessarily connecting it to self being self-protective. You know what I'm saying? I don't think people are saying like I'm under constant assault and to def to protect myself from the constant assault barrage of negative things coming my direction. I'm just sort of like slowly going into hibernation, <laughs> but it is, it ultimately it's like addressing that same, that, that same need. And then there's the, like, I don't feel connected. I don't care about the people around me. And so why would I make the effort to be kind to them or to be clear with them? And I think that can happen for many reasons. And then the last one I think is sort of a lack of awareness or not, not understanding what other people need um, and acting from a place of, of ignorance can wind up landing as manipulative insincerity. And so, you know, Brandy, your point about the project manager who's withholding information, like from their perspective, they may not be withholding information. You know, they, they think they're sharing information as, as they need to, but the way that that lands for other people is, is that they're sort of hoarding information. And I think, like, they may also be aware of that. So the last way in is sort of the most sinister, which is, like, where you're actively trying to harm other people, right? Like, you, you are intentionally being unclear and not showing care because you feel like that person deserves what's coming to them. <laughs> Yeah, it's just to kind of reiterate what you shared, which I think is very helpful, is almost like kind of what are the underlying, whether it's needs or, or kind of self-protection modes, um, what is self-protection? One you said is, is, is about not caring. Uh, one is about sort of exhaustion and there's an element of maybe time. Another one is maybe not being aware. Then there was also the act of harm. I think with things like the the not aware or the don't care, the exhausted, where I'm seeing this quite a bit, especially now with the remote, is not that people inherently don't care and not that they don't want to be helpful, but when you are doing all that you can to literally like just stay alive and take care of your family and your work and just like stay afloat. Even the perception of, oh my gosh, it's going to take me five more minutes to send Brandy the email about the things she needs to know. I think it's, it's even deeper than not aware. It's like, I just, I just don't even have, whether it's bandwidth or whatever term we want to use, but I think there's something about, I am at that sort of existential level of like in Maslow's hierarchy, like I'm just trying to stay afloat and I can barely, like, I do care, but I can barely even get my own needs met. Yeah. I mean, that's the problem of like living through a global pandemic and forest fires and protests for racial justice. Like there's for racial justice, there's just so many things that feel existential. Uh, homeschooling your children, <laughs> caring for sick loved ones, like th these things are all happening at the same time for people. So I, I think a lot of people are in that that sort of like survival 
mode, it's especially hard because one one thing I, we forgot, which is where we started, which was conflict avoidance, was the <laughs> other way that you wind, you wind we were, up. We were avoiding that. Yeah, we were avoiding that one. And I think like the, whether you're just trying to stay afloat or you're not wanting to, even if you're, even if you're at the level of consciousness where it's like, I could do this, right? Because some of what you're saying is like, some people aren't even thinking about this because they're literally going from thing to thing and just trying to make it through the day. But even if it rises to the level of awareness where you're like, I could have this conversation, but then again... I also have 8 million other things to do. And so wouldn't it be easier to just yeah. not have this conversation? <laughs> and I, I think it's like, it, it's true. And it's also a, a little bit like, it's like a little bit of grit in the finely tuned machine. Like sometimes yeah. well, it winds like, up really like, wearing yeah, you down. I, I should have this conversation, but gosh, like it's just the way that we're wired. Like I'll just kick this can down the road a little bit. And then meanwhile, the relationship is fraying and we're starting to play stories in our heads of what the email really meant. And now we're starting to resent this person and we're creating a whole story and I, oh, I should reach out. And now it's like, it's past. And is it really that big a deal? Maybe it's not that big a deal. And so then we just sort of rationalize and all of a sudden we get an email from them with the same thing. And then we blow up and lash out is another part of that. And I, I think that we can't overemphasize that enough of like this human desire to not make change until it's like somebody runs through the stop sign and or that there should be a stop sign and there's not one there. And it's like we don't put the stop sign there until there's something egregious. And so I think the cautionary tale of manipulative insincerity is like when we're in that quadrant, it starts to get harder. Like we're digging deeper and deeper and deeper into that hole and it starts to feel kind of insurmountable. So on that note, I think Amy, what you said, I'll just say this briefly about being adverse to making change or things seem seeming too difficult. I stayed in a relationship for years because I was so busy at work and I was, it just seemed so much easier. The thought of having to move out of the apartment I shared with this person, find a roommate because I was working at a newspaper, so I wasn't making enough money to afford rent of my own. Yeah. All of that was so overwhelming that I stayed in a relationship that should have ended years sooner than it did uh, just because I didn't want to have a conversation. And I think that is something that plays out over and over again in relationships and at work, how many people stay in bad jobs because they're afraid of making the change. Yeah, even when things are otherwise good, like even when times when we're not in a pandemic and a recession and all this other, like even when opportunity abounds, we still stay in those bad situations. It, I, I'm so glad you brought that up, Brandy, because there's something about, and we think about, I know we've talked about the scarf model before from David Rock about, you know, moving towards rewards away from threats. But one of the threats is, um, is just around sort of lack of certainty and humans do not like change and we are in such a time of change and we're in such a time of uncertainty and to your point Jason even if we were in sort of a thriving economy and people felt like they had other options there's still uncertainty there but now there's so much economic uncertainty and just we're sort of grasping for any sense of stability so even if it's a negative experience it's still sort of the familiar negative experience and sort of breaking out of that habit is so is so hard so you know, Jason, one of the things that I so appreciate about you is the relationship that we have that I feel like I can share anything with you. And you had sent me a note in Slack about having 
a meeting because our one-on-one -on -one that week was canceled and, and I'm not going to be able to remember it. You had some, some thoughts you wanted to share. Was it thoughts you wanted yes, to share? Yes, so that's what it was. I had and thoughts. So, yeah. So it was, I have some thoughts I want to share, which, and I don't know how many of you listening are wired the way that I am, but to me, thoughts I want to share equals end of days. Like there's no part of that, you know, negativity bias that no matter what my relationship is with Jason, like I'm just going to absolute worst case scenario. And this was a Monday and the meeting was a Wednesday. And I was like, well, do I say something? Do I not say something? I was like, no, this would be very good practice for me to practice mindfulness and awareness and just trust and all of the different skill sets. And so Wednesday rolls around and Jason started off by sharing about a project that I was working on and, you know, how I thought it was going and, and so I realized like that was what he wanted to talk about. And it was really like not a big deal at all. And it was just actually how he could be helpful. And there were definitely things that I needed to step up on and things that we needed clarity on. And so anyhow, it was, I thought an extremely helpful conversation and I felt safe enough with Jason to say, and can I just ask, please don't ever <laughs> put in Slack. I have thoughts <laughs> to, yeah. to share. But it was really good because then I was like, well, how would I want that? It was like, hey, I want to check in with you on this project. Do you have time on blank? You know, yeah. but there was something about the phrase I have thoughts that just like sounded like the ominous sound in the in the movie. Yeah, like almost the comedic part of it is like I spent a lot of time trying to find the right way to phrase that <laughs> and I still completely screwed it up. So I feel like. Like I was aware of it and I was just like, I don't know, like how do I, and I, I remember there was like, I had like several iterations that I deleted just asking you like, what is a good way to do this? Because I do think we were running into the same thing that clients talk to us all the time about, which is it wasn't trivial to like actually get time on calendar. Like you were facilitating, I was facilitating, like, are we going to do this at 6, 6.30 at night or something like that? You know what I mean? Like the, those were like the choices that, that we were facing. And I think that in my mind, it, it's more like there are two ways out of it. Like one, one way is to approach that conversation in as collaborative a way as possible. And I think like one of the mistakes, if I was to try to classify the like error in thinking was my intention was was really to say like there are things I'm curious about and I want to check in with you and get your perspective on how things are going like that's what, really what I was trying to say but I was focused too much on myself there and I could have just said like there's something like I, I would love to get your perspective on how things are going and that would have come across as more supportive I think that was sort of interesting um, to realize like oh like that was one way out of it was just to make the message more closely match match my intent which was to, to sort of understand where where you were at and figure out how I could help yeah well and I bring it up I mean because I think what's so interesting is like obviously I like we are steeped in this stuff and I I can't say to the extent to which how much I know that you care like and yet there are these parts in our brain that are going to go right to sort of that fight flight they're going to go right to negativity bias so Yep. Just all, and then when you when you layer into your point about time, I mean, we're seeing this all the time now in workshops of like, how am I going to get the go to question in? Like, when is this going to happen, and how can we build it into the into the sort of the course of what we're doing? So, I do think when we think about synchronous, asynchronous, the asynchronous setup of the synchronous meeting mm -hmm. can, and clearly, you had already put time into how you wanted to do it. So just. I guess the, the moral of the story here is we're going to have 
a lot more um, fails than we might like. And it's actually in, in that failing that we get closer. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if we can give some tips that are very kind of small and practical, especially if people are maybe feeling a little bit overwhelmed, that might be, that might be really important. And one is, I think, Jason, I'm just going to kind of go off of what you shared, which is to really focus on what the other person needs and not your fear. So often for those of us that struggle with ruinous empathy, we're, we're afraid that it's going to land as like obnoxious aggression. But in fact, what that person needs from us is that clarity and is that that's like the kindest thing we can do is to be clear. So there's an element of having to get out of sort of our own heads and think about what is it that this person really needs. And if I were that person, you know, what would I most appreciate? So really, uh, I would certainly appreciate not having a Slack channel named Amy's Teeth, although I would hope you would tell me. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think an extension of that is is to talk to people to, directly instead of talking about them. I, I think emotional processing is important. And when we do criticize people behind their backs, it does have a, a way, a tendency of getting getting back to them. And so we, we've all had the experience of hearing something about ourselves that who, the source is someone who we otherwise trust or, or, or like, and that does far more damage to the relationship than someone just getting into it with you directly and saying, like, it really ticked me off that you did this. Hearing that from a third party and that it came from this person that you trust or liked is often really devastating to relationships. And especially in this moment, I feel like there, there are so many opportunities for us to slip into that behavior that it's just really important to see if we can find a way to talk directly to people. I will add that we want to really over-index on information sharing. So this Harvard Business Review article that we referred to, which is in the show notes, newly remote workers are often surprised by the added time and effort needed to locate information from coworkers. Even getting answers to what seems like simple questions can feel like a large obstacle to a worker based at home. So I think the takeaway there is the, the time that you can take to bring everyone along will really pay off this idea that we want to measure twice and cut once. Not only will it help your coworker, it will also minimize the stories that they're making up in their head by you not bringing them along. And when you do have these conversations, remember that you can't control other people's emotions. I think that's Often that's what we're imagining we would do um, by being manipulatively insincere, right? By not saying something, we're managing someone's emotion in, in some direction or by being sort of unclear or, un, or, or untruthful, we're managing that person's emotions. We're causing them to behave or react in a certain way. But we can't do that. And if we want to build really strong relationships, we need to instead be willing to share our perspective and then react with compassion to someone else's emotions. Don't worry so much uh, about controlling them. Instead, uh, embrace the, the humanity that, that comes with those conversations. And people will often report that those lead to much stronger relationships. Like very few people said, I built the strongest relationship of my career in an environment where everything went well from day one. There were never any problems. Like all the best relationships in our career are from environments in which we've faced real challenges. Improvising Radical Candor introduces the feedback loop. Think Groundhog Day meets the office. 
a five-episode workplace comedy starring David Alan Greer. We're repeating the same day over and over. What the hell is happening? Okay, where do we keep starting over? This is your Let's get Let's get Let's get I think that's the key to this whole thing. We have to practice radical candor. Damn it. Thank you for the candor. Feels like you're constantly criticizing it. What? I haven't really known what you've been talking about. I'm worried I was a little vague and insincere. Let's just keep praising them. It's positive. How could that be bad? If you can say it to a dog, it's not really praise. Okay, poster child for radical candor. Show me how it's done. Okay, boomer. We may break the cycle this time. Anybody have a vacuum? Just a little ready candy. Ew. I apologize for that one. Go to RadicalCandor.com slash services and enter the promo code FEEDBACK at checkout. Thanks for joining us. Our podcast features Radical Candor co-founders Kim Scott and Jason Rosoff, is produced by our director of content, Brandy Neal, and hosted by me, Amy Sandler. Music is by Cliff Goldmacher. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Candor and find us online at RadicalCandor.com. We'll see you soon.